So Matthew chapter 16, uh, if you will, open with me there. Matthew 16. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And for the last few weeks, we're in this series called The Church. And we've been looking at what, what is a church? What does it mean to be a church? And what are the marks that make a church a church? And so in week one, we, we really put our, our flag in the sand. We, we drew a line in the sand. And, and we said that whatever we would have, whatever ideas we would have about the church, they must come from the word of God. Amen? That all of us probably have some ideas about the church, either from our tradition or our past or, or past experiences, that we all have some preconceived notions about what a church is and what makes a church a church. However, all of those things, traditions, experiences, our own ideas and thoughts, we must submit to God's word. Amen? Amen. And so we're spending the next few weeks here at the church looking at what God's word says about the church. And then last week we, we dialed in on uh, this Greek word. Do you remember how to, I have the word, let's put this Greek word up and see if any of you can pronounce it. There we go, that's the Greek word. How, what, what is this word? Ecclesia, right? We looked at this word, ecclesia. This is the Greek word behind church in, in that passage that we looked at from Matthew chapter 16. And what does this word mean? A building, right? Oh, no. It means a hierarchy of bishops and priests and cardinals, right? That's what... No, no what is it? It is a, a gathering of people. It is an assembly. It is citizens, literally in Jesus' day, citizens called out from their homes to gather for a specific purpose. And we saw how important it is. It's, it's at the center of who we are as a church. What it means to be a church is that we gather together, that we come together. Now, today we're going to continue on and, and we're going to continue to, to lay this, now with this foundation, to, to lay the, the definition finally and fully. This is the third week of our introduction and we're going to finish our introduction uh, this week. And we are going to answer the question, what is a church and what is it that makes a people, a certain people, what, what is it that binds them together into a church? And so Matthew chapter 16, if you will, we're going to read this passage again, a powerful passage, and because we live in San Antonio and we all need more exercise, I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning <laughs> to honor the word of God uh, today. Now you can follow along with me, I'm not going to ask you to read it with me this morning, but let's just follow along together. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. So the question for us today, if we're going to know what a church is from the word of God, we have to identify what this rock is that Jesus is building his church upon. Jesus said, I will build my church upon this rock. So what is this rock that Jesus is building his church upon? It is central for us in our understanding of a church and the church to know what is the rock. Now, historically, there have been two uh, interpretations of this passage, and we're going to look at both of them today. The first is that Peter is the rock that Jesus is building his church upon. Jesus said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The second is that it's Peter's confession. It is the confession that, Jesus, that Peter made that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's look at both of these this morning. Let's, let's look at the scriptures and see if we can figure out which of these is the rock that Jesus is building his church upon. Let's first look at Peter. Now we cannot deny that God used Peter in a powerful way in his church and in the early church. That Peter is always listed as the first disciple. In every list of the disciples, Peter is always listed first. And can you guess which disciple is listed last? Judas. In every, in every, every single list of the disciples, Peter is first and Judas is last. And in the middle, they're all kind of thrown around a little bit. But Peter is first and Judas is last and, and God used Peter in a powerful way to birth the church. You remember on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, that it was Peter who stood up and preached that first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 souls on that day were added to the church. 3,000 souls came forward and repented of their sin and were baptized in the name of Jesus and were added to the church on that one day. You remember the beginning of that day, there was only about 120 followers of Christ. By the time the sun set, that number had multiplied greatly. And Peter was used by God in a powerful way. So we, we can't deny that. It's, it's obvious that God did use Peter. But as you continue on through the New Testament, what you will see is that Peter is not infallible. Amen? Peter is not perfect. Peter has some issues that he's still working through uh, as a follower of Christ, as we all do. The Roman Catholic Church will point to this passage and they will say, this is Jesus establishing Peter as the first pope. This is Jesus establishing the, the papacy and Peter was the first pope and, and that the, the papacy has been handed down from, from, 
from Peter on down through a line of succession to the Pope that they have today. But what we see is that Peter is not, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, he is not infallible. He is a human and he is prone to error just like every other human being. He is one of 12 apostles, but he is not perfect, nor is he even in charge sometimes. So as we continue on, you only have to keep reading Matthew 16. I don't have it on the screen, but if you look at verse 21, this is the very next verse. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here we see that it, we don't even get out of this chapter before Peter is making one of the biggest blunders of his life, rebuking Christ. Jesus, in turn, rebukes him. We see as we continue on through the book of Acts that in Acts chapter 8 that the apostles at Jerusalem send Peter and John to go and minister to those in Samaria. And so Peter is not acting as some sort of leader over the entire church. He is working as one of the apostles and the apostles send Peter to go and to minister to those in Samaria. In Acts chapter 11... You'll recall that uh, Peter had gone and ministered to a Gentile, which was a scandalous thing to do, ministered to Cornelius in his home. Peter went into a Gentile's home. And when the church in Jerusalem hears about this and, and Peter returns to Jerusalem, they call together the whole church and they bring Peter before them and they say, Peter, you've got some explaining to do. Peter is called on the carpet by the church. Of course, Peter tells them that it actually is the Holy Spirit that's doing this. But here what we see is that Peter is not ruling over the church. Peter is part of the church. In Acts chapter 15, the great Jerusalem council, where the church is, is, is working through and processing what do we do with all these Gentiles that are being added to the body of Christ? Do they need to become Jewish in order to be saved? This great council where Peter and Paul and James and John and Barnabas and all of the apostles come together to, to meet on this issue. We see early on in the meeting in this council that Peter speaks up. But the meeting continues even after Peter speaks. And it's the apostle James that delivers the final word at this council. It's not Peter. That already by this time in Acts chapter 15 that the, the leader in Jerusalem of the church was not Peter, but it was rather James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. And of course we know the very famous story from Galatians chapter 2 
where Peter comes and visits the church in Antioch and that he is there eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles and they're having a great time. They're eating barbecue pork ribs, right? I mean, they're just, they're having a great time. But then some Jewish brothers come from Jerusalem and, and when they come, Peter then separates himself from the Gentile believers and at the church fellowship, he, he's eating a kosher diet and he's pretending to, to keep to the Jewish law even though previously he was fellowshipping with all the Gentile believers and Paul goes to him and calls him out, rebukes him in front of the whole church and says, what are you doing? There aren't two churches. We are one body in Christ, Jew and Gentile. Paul rebukes Peter because his behavior was not in step with the gospel. We see that Peter is not infallible. And so the question remains, is Peter the rock that Jesus is building his church upon? I believe that the biblical evidence shows us, as we look at the book of Acts, it shows us clearly that Peter is not ruling and reigning over the church as the Pope, but he is part of the body, one of the apostles, one of the leaders, but not the leader. And so now let's look at this second issue, this issue of the confession, because I do not believe that Peter is the rock that Jesus is talking about. I believe it is the confession that Peter makes. The confession, the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. It is this belief and it is this confession upon which Jesus is building his church. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This confession is the rock that Jesus is building his church upon. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And if we look even at this passage again, if we look, flip back to Matthew 16 and we look at what Jesus says after Peter makes this confession, he says, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed are you. What Jesus says is remarkable is not Peter himself, but what is remarkable is the confession that he made. He says, you are blessed, Peter, because God has revealed this to you. You are blessed. You are favored. Unmerited favor. The grace of God has been bestowed upon you. But it's not that it's, you know, Jesus doesn't take a step back and says, oh, wow, Peter, you're so awesome. No, he says, blessed are you because God has revealed this to you. Jesus says the remarkable thing is not Peter, but Peter's confession. And this is what makes this confession spectacular. Because only God can open your eyes to this truth. 
Only God can reveal to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a revelation from God. It's not flesh and blood that reveal this to us. Though we may hear the gospel preached through the lips of a man, though we may hear and have the gospel shared with us from flesh and blood, what, what confirms to us that it is the truth is the work of God in our lives. It is God that opens our eyes. It is God that unstops our ears. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, even while we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God that no one may boast. It comes from God. Though we may hear the gospel preached through flesh and blood, it is God who reveals to us the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, this is the rock that Jesus has been, is building, and will build his church upon. Jesus is the Son of God. And the church of Jesus Christ is made up of those who, like Peter, share in this confession. The church is made up of all of those who share the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the church. The church is the gathering. The church is the people. The church is, is those who have been called out, called out from the world by God himself and who now share in this confession, Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. The church of Jesus Christ spans borders. It spans nations. It spans denominations. It spans every, every line of division that, that we would ever try to draw. It is made up of people from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue. Those who profess that Jesus is the Son of God, who put their faith in Christ. This is what we call the, the universal church. This is what we call the, the capital C church. The church universal. And this church is invisible. We, 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 we don't see this church all throughout the world. We will see this church in heaven one day. The body of Christ, his body, his church will be with God forever in his kingdom in the future. But until that day, we are spread out through all, all the world. The universal church made up of all those who profess faith in Christ. And we must acknowledge 
that the only reason we can make this confession is because God himself has opened our eyes. It's not that we're smarter than certain other people. (laughs) It's because God has been gracious to us. That there's nothing in us that has merited his favor. That's what makes it unmerited favor. The grace of God. That's what grace means. And so we must acknowledge that the only reason I'm saved today, the only reason I'm part of God's family is because God saved me. Because God redeemed me. Because God has been so, so, so good to me. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of those who see Jesus for who he is and whom God has opened their eyes to see this truth. So the church, it is not a building. The church is not a hierarchy of some sort of religious system. The church is a people. It is a people. And not just any people. It is a particular people. The Bible even calls us a peculiar people. As I look around this room this morning, I see a peculiar people who has gathered here today. Amen. We own that. We're, we're, <laughs> we're not like the world. We have been called out of the world. We have been set free from the power of darkness and the power of the world. A peculiar people, a particular people called out from the world by God himself who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, Jesus asked this question to his disciples. Who do people say that the son of man is? Who do people say that I am? They gave him all kinds of different options. In, in Jesus' day, there was all this speculation about who Jesus was. Maybe he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Maybe he's one of the prophets. Maybe he's this other figure. And today, in our world today, there, there's, there, there'll be any number of people who will give you any number of opinions on who they think Jesus is. Stop anybody on the street today and ask them if they know who Jesus Christ is. You, you probably, you, you know, you'd probably get, almost everyone would say, yeah, I know who Jesus is. I've, I've heard of Jesus. I think it would be hard to stop somebody in, in America today, in San Antonio today, and say, do you know who Jesus is? And they would say, I, I have never heard of Jesus Christ. So what that means is that everybody's walking around with some sort of idea in their mind about who Jesus is. And if you ask them that question, you would probably get just as many answers as people that you asked that question. Well, I think he was a good man. I think he was a moral teacher. I think he was a miracle worker. I think that maybe he was even a prophet sent by God. Islam teaches that Jesus was a a prophet sent from Allah. But he wasn't the greatest prophet, that the greatest prophet came later, Muhammad. So Jesus is subservient to Muhammad. That's what Islam teaches. So if you asked a a Muslim today, what do you think about Jesus? They would would have a lot of great things to say about Jesus. 
very high things to say about Jesus. He was a prophet sent from God. He brought the word of God. But if you asked, is he the son of God? They would emphatically deny that God has no son. It's not enough to just hold Jesus in high regard uh, to be a part of his assembly, his gathering, his congregation, his church. You must declare, like Peter, that Jesus is not just a good teacher, that Jesus is not someone who just had taught uh, some good things about how to live life, that Jesus wasn't just a prophet, no, but that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. The church is made up of those who hold to this confession. That's the who of the church. The who, those who hold the confession. I want to talk to you a little bit about the who's. Who does the church belong to? Who owns the church? Jesus owns the church. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. The church is the people made up of those who share this confession and we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. He said, I will build my church. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul, to the elders in Ephesus, he says, Keep a close watch over yourselves and the entire flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, the ecclesia, the gathering, which he purchased with his own blood. Why does the church belong to Jesus? Because he paid for us with his own blood. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by washing her with the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 1.22, and he, that's God the Father, put all things under his feet, that's Jesus Christ, and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Listen, we must understand that the church belongs to Jesus Christ. We, the people, the gathering, the assembly, those that God has called out from the world, we belong to Jesus Christ. This changes everything about your life. Everything. The fact that you belong to Christ should influence every decision that you make for the rest of your life. 
My life is no longer my own. My life was my own before Jesus saved me. And look what a mess I made. When, when I do life my way and I don't consider Christ and his way, what, what, what comes about but brokenness, sin, heartache, folly, broken lives, broken relationships, ruined destinies. So now that I'm no longer part of the world, I've been rescued from the world. I belong to Christ. That's why I declare that Jesus is Lord. So every decision I make, everything I now do, should be under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The things that I watch on TV should be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The, the way I talk to my wife should be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The, the way I treat others in my life, the, the way I relate to my children, the, the relationships that I have with, with my boss and, and, and my family and, and the interaction that I have with the police officer that pulled me over even though I wasn't speeding. All of these things must be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The way I treat others when they are mistreating me, I must submit to the Lordship of Christ. Why? Because my life is no longer my own. It does not belong to me. This is what this confession means. How can you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he has saved you, that he has redeemed you, that you have been bought with a price, that he has set you free of sin? How can you confess all of those things and then just go on living life the way you've always lived it? How is that possible? It's logically incoherent. It doesn't make sense. It's a fallacy. To, to profess one thing and then to live another way. Well, what this tells me and what this tells everyone is that if I confess that Jesus is Lord, if I confess that he is the Son of God, come from heaven to earth, ascended back into heaven, coming one day to judge the living and the dead, if I confess all of these things, but I live like the world, I have to say there's a problem with the confession that maybe you can mouth the words, but they have not sunk deep into your heart. This is what it means that Jesus is Lord. This is what it means that we belong to him, that the church belongs to Christ. We need to understand who the church belongs to and who the church is being built by. And the rock that Jesus is building his church upon. There are many today, even well-meaning Christians, who do not understand who is building the church. There are many well-meaning Christians who, who do not know that it is Christ who builds the church. As you read through the book of Acts, 
It says, the Lord added to their midst those who were being saved. That it is the Lord that builds the church. It is the Lord that adds to the church. It is the Lord that saves people, redeems their life, and adds them to the church. But when people don't understand this, even well-meaning Christians, they stray off into all manner of foolishness because they think that it is upon them to build the church. They they take it upon themselves to, to build the church. When so clearly in this passage it says that it is Christ who builds the church. And so oftentimes we see that that there are many who try to build the church themselves, oftentimes building it upon themselves. Many try to build the church upon their own gifts, on their own talents, on their own abilities, even on their own personality. But it is God who builds the church. It is not us who build the church. If we think it is upon us to build the church, I talked about this in the first week of this series, that we'll do all manner of things to try to make the church look attractive to the world. We try to make the church appealing to people that have no interest whatsoever in spiritual things. The church is not made up of just any old people that come together because they like to come together. The church isn't built on the the rock of we've got good coffee here. The church is not built on the rock of, wow, we've got some really great music going happening here. The the church is not built on the rock of the, the winsome personality of the pastor and his eloquence in communication. But there are many well-meaning Christians who try to build the church on those things. Unfortunately, there are even many well-meaning Christians who evaluate an assembly, a gathering, a local church on those things. Well, I, I like the music here, but the kids' ministry over here is a lot better, and they all, th- this place is always too hot, and, and the coffee over here is really good, so if I'm running late, I'll just go to that church because I, I know I'll get good coffee there. Is that, is, is that what Jesus is building his church on? That is shifting sand. That is not a rock. That is not a rock. When we try to make the church appeal to the world, we invite the foolishness of the world into the church. We begin to define success by the way the world defines success. As we read the Bible, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you would never come away with the idea that God's measure for success is sheer numbers. The, the, the size of something, you would never come away with that. I, just this week, I was reading in my Bible the story of Gideon. Gideon's army, he had, what was it, 20,000, 30,000 that showed up to fight with him against an army of 
250,000? And God says to Gideon, you've got too many people. <laughs> yeah, if this is going to work, we're really going to have to whittle this down. So Gideon tells him, if anybody's afraid, you can leave. Something like 20,000 of them left. A third of them leave. God looks at him and says, oh, no, still way too many. Way too many. He whittles it down to 300 going up against an army of a quarter of a million. God says, yeah, that looks about right. Now we can get to business. Now, now we can really do something here. Sheer numbers is never God's measure of success. That's the world's way of looking at things. If I try to build, if I try to build the church upon the means which, which I have, I only have to use the things of the world. And so then I must define success by the measure of the world. We have to transform our thinking. The truth is, I believe that the church is called to stand out from the world, to be a light in a dark place, to look different from the world, to be distinct from the world, to be salt to the world. We must understand that it is Christ who builds the church. And if we do, we will be content to obey what God's word says about the church, about how to conduct ourselves within the church, about how the leadership of the church should be. If we understand that it is Christ who is building his church, if we understand that the church belongs to him and not us, we will happily humble ourselves under what God's word teaches. But when we think that it is us, we begin to tweak God's word to try to make it fit the culture that is something that we will not do because Jesus is the Son of God. Because Jesus Christ is King and Lord. He is sovereign. Therefore, we will obey him if our confession is genuine. The church is also not a club. The church is not just a group of people who are interested in religious things. So we gather to you know, stoke our, our itch, scratch our itch for religios religiosity with, you know, mutual people that are interested in religion. The church is not a club. The church is not a country club. Many people approach the church like they are approaching deciding between Costco and Sam's Club. The church is not a club. The church is a kingdom. And Jesus is king. And Jesus rules and reigns over his church. Amen. And so we must not approach the church like a club. If we do, we're thinking like the world thinks. And so in closing today, I want to look at this question that we've been asking Okay, the, the universal church, the, the capital C church, the church that is made up of every believer from every tribe and nation and tongue, that is the people that profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who have repented of sin, they've turned from sin, they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. But then what takes a group of believers, a, a, a group of confessors, and what shapes them and forms them 
into a local church like we have here today, Destiny Church. We see in the New Testament that there are, there's the capital C church, the church universal, but then all scattered around the world, there are smaller assemblies of God's people, local churches. As we look in San Antonio, we see there are lots of different local churches. So what is it that takes a group of people and transforms them from just being a group of, of confessors into being a local church. And as we look at the word of God, Acts 2.42 tells us this, what makes a church a church. This is the day of Pentecost. This is after Peter preached and the, the, those 3,000 repented and put faith in Christ. Acts 2.42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and the prayers. So who is they? The, the they is those who confessed, who believed in Christ, who were baptized and were added to the church by the Lord on that day. The 3,000. The they is the first church. And what conforms them, what, what shapes their lives together are these things. This is what makes a church a church. And so a church is this. A local church is this. A group of believers, confessors, under the care of biblically qualified leaders who gather in Jesus' name to do three things. To worship Jesus as king, to hear God's word faithfully preached, and to participate in the sacraments, baptism and communion. This is what takes a, a group of believers and transforms them and molds them and shapes them into a local church. All of us know people, friends and family, that are believers, that are confessors. They, they hold to the same confession as us, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we may gather with them from time to time, either in our family or even for fellowship. But what transforms a gathering from just being a group of people who gather together, who, who share faith in Christ, what transforms them into a local church is that they regularly, consistently come together under the care of biblically qualified leaders. We see this in the church in Jerusalem. The apostles were there. They were submitted to the apostles, submitted to their teaching. They gathered together in the name of Christ. That means submitted to the authority of Christ. They came together to worship Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. They came together, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to come and to hear God's word faithfully preached and that they participated in the sacraments. They had just participated in baptism and then here we see the breaking of bread. Where these three things are happening, a group of people are being transformed into a local church. 
This is what makes a church a church. Now, if these things are absent, if these things are absent, it may say church on the sign, but it's not a church. There's a church down the street, not on Callahan, but further away, that they do not hold to the confession that Jesus is the Christ. They do not meet under biblically, biblically qualified leaders. They do not gather in Jesus' name. They gather in the name of whatever God you confess. They do not worship Jesus as king. The word of God is blasphemed. And therefore the participation in the sacraments is not faithful, is not holy. So though it may say church on the outside, what's happening on the inside is not a church. Do you understand this? This is what is required for there to be a, a, biblic, a church by the definition of what the Bible declares a church to be. And so when we gather, we gather as the saints of God. We gather under qualified leaders, the elders of the church, qualified according to the, the, the qualifications set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and, and Titus chapter 1. We gather in the name of Christ, submitted to his lordship. We gather to worship him as king, to hear his word faithfully preached, and to participate in communion and to participate in baptism. This is what makes a group of believers into a local church. Now, this doesn't even begin to touch on what the purpose of a church is, what the mission of the church is, what we're supposed to be doing as a church, and so we'll save that for next week. Amen. But in closing today, just a point of application, the, the question I want to leave before you is, how is your confession? How is your confession? Are you like so many others that have such a, so many different ideas about who Jesus is? Or are you like Peter who declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? How is your confession? And then as you look at your life, is your life lining up with your confession? Is your life, does your life line up with your confession? Listen, as we read in Ephesians 5, through the washing of the water of God's word, the Lord is preparing his bride. He is, he is making us pure and spotless. All of us should be aiming for in our lives to be more like Christ every day through the power of God's Spirit at work in our lives, how is your confession? I want to close by reading Hebrews chapter 10. I shared with you one verse from Hebrews chapter 10 last week. We looked at uh, verse 25. 
This morning I want to start in verse 23. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In the verse I shared with you last week, 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here we see in verse 23, he says, Hold fast to your confession. Stir one another up, encourage one another, and continue to gather together. Don't stop gathering together as is the habit of some, but let us continue to come and to gather together. And again, I just want to show you the connection between your confession and the fact that we gather. Peter made the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, upon this rock... I will build my ecclesia. I will build my gathering. So as we hold fast to our confession, we must also continue to come together and to gather as God's people to receive his word, to worship Jesus as king, and to participate in the sacraments together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you that you have made us, those who confess faith in Christ, you have made us a part of your church. The unmerited favor, the grace of God that you have showed us in the face of your Son. Lord, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. You have redeemed us. Help us, as Paul writes in Ephesians, to let our walk line up. Let it be worthy with the redemption that we have received. We can't do it in our own strength, just like we can't save ourselves. But Lord, as we humble ourselves under your word, as we humble ourselves under the conviction of your spirit, as we walk in the spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, You transform us day by day, moment by moment to live not for ourselves and our own glory, but to live for you and for your glory. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I thank you for your your spirit and your presence that is, is here with us right now. Lord, let us be sensitive to your spirit. But so many things, so many voices, so many distractions. It's so easy to, to have the voice of your spirit drowned out by every other voice in our lives. But Lord, teach us, help us to be sensitive to the leading, the guiding, the voice of your spirit in our lives. But though you may call us to do things that the world would say is strange the world would say is unusual. Lord, you've called us out of the world. So give us the boldness to live for you in this day. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Amen.